Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And welcome to the Osher Ginsberg podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. This is episode number 77 with Her Royal Highness Princess Rima Bint Banda Al Saud. Yes, indeed. A proper Saudi princess. She's a CEO, entrepreneur, and a tireless advocate for the empowerment of women in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. We will talk more about her in just a moment. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much for listening. If you're new, please subscribe. You can do so in the... Uh, iPhone or Android app of your choice. I choose Pocket Casts, but you can also listen to this show now on SoundCloud and a few other places around the internet. You can join up the mailing mailing list, osherginsberg.com. That's where I will write to you every week and tell you about upcoming episodes. And this week, I would ask very kindly that you find the uh, Facebook post of this episode, which will be on my Facebook page, and just share it out to your people. Share it to your people please. That's what I would ask of you to do. I'm not hard to find on Facebook. Just type in my name and there's a photo of me with a mustache. There it is. How was your week? Was your week good? What did you do? Thank you so much for all the emails that you send me. I I read every single one of them. I don't reply to all of them, but I absolutely read every single one. I reply to most of them. Um, I had the, the nuttiest weekend last weekend at the invitation of the network that I work for here in Australia, the 10 network. I went down to the Formula One Grand Prix down in Melbourne and it was uh, nothing short of amazing. I've got to tell you something and I've got to be honest with you. It's the second time I've been, but the first time I went, I don't really remember it because I was drinking back then. But yeah, uh, <laughs> it was lovely to go and remember the experience. Um uh, the last time I went was like 2004, I think. So to go again was just wonderful. And I, I, I've got to I've got to be totally honest with you. It was a full-on weekend as it is down in Melbourne. Whenever the Formula One goes to any city, there's always a lot of events around that. So there was 
the big fashion festival on the night before as well and a whole bunch of other things which is very very exciting and a long time ago now i did a television show called australian idol and when that was huge and big and on there was you know front row seats would appear out of nowhere and cables would appear at restaurants and this sort of stuff and there's sort of things that happen when you're on a massive tv show and i won't lie to you my ego started to expect that and when it went away my ego was very upset but thankfully i got to grow out of that experience and i got to find humility because as the great man said find humility or humility will find you and so on last friday night uh we went to this uh, david jones opening parade of the uh, virgin australia melbourne fashion festival and the uh, pr people said oh come this way and they said here's your seats the place was packed there must have been two thousand people in there and we had seats right at the very end of the runway i'm i'm it was crazy, like where the ladies and the men did their stand, left hip, right hip stand, right turn walk. That's where we were. We were right at the end of the runway and it was just amazing. There was a time in my life where I kind of expected that kind of thing. I'm not going to lie. I'm not ashamed. I'm not, I'm not proud of it, but I did. And the same thing happened when we went to the um, race the next day. Uh, the network being the host broadcaster had a... <laughs> We had a suite right above the Red Bull pits, which is crazy, but it was amazing. It was, I was just so grateful, so, so grateful to be there. And it was a lot of fun. It was nice to be part of something so exciting. And they asked me if I would be a part of a thing called the Ultimate Speed Challenge, which is a Mercedes AMG versus a V8 supercar versus a Formula One car. And they started us with a handicap. I was in the AMG car and we went first. 15 seconds later, they started the V8 supercar. And then after that, I think 45 seconds later, they started the Formula One car. So they walked me down pit lane, which is insane uh, as it is, because you're just walking past these billion dollar teams and they get to the end and I get to the AMG car. And the first time I see who's driving me, Mick Doohan is driving me. Mick Doohan, Formula, uh, f- f- former uh, Australian uh, world, sorry, world MotoGP champion. And now uh, driver, Mick Doohan. And uh, Craig Lowndes was there. He was driving the V8 supercar. And then uh, there was another driver in the uh, F1 car. And I, I just could not believe it. And then we get in the, we get in the AMG and Mick Doohan, loveliest bloke ever, he's driving with one hand, you know, doing 200 k's an hour around this racetrack. And it's really interesting. You know, my anxiety is a fascinating thing. I have absolutely no problem being fanged around a Formula One track at 200 kilometers per hour in a production car. But when my brain decides to imagine the world coming to an end or, you know, some sort of cataclysmic scenario, it crushes me. It was really, really interesting. It was fascinating to observe that, that I wasn't actually that scared at all being driven around this racetrack. But, you know, when an actual really scary life-threatening thing is happening to me well, okay piece of trust he's a good driver there's airbags in the car it's going to be fine but when my brain kind of decides how bad a situation is going to end up with absolutely no shred of evidence to back it up it paralyzes me it was just it was kind of interesting it was kind of uh, kind of interesting to, to be observant of that and just remind myself that when actually i'm in some scary situations i'm actually pretty good anyway it was fascinating fascinating to observe um, is that too open? Am I being too honest this week? Well, I've been honest with you enough by now. Anyway, sorry, I'm kind of tired. We've been shooting. We're shooting Bachelor at the moment, and 
Yeah, how do you follow up the biggest season of The Bachelor with the biggest season of The Bachelor? My goodness, we're doing some big stuff this year. You're really going to dig it. Let me uh, let me tell you about my guest this week. I am very, very happy to bring you my guest this week. She and I met in Amsterdam at the school I work at, Think, the Amsterdam School of Creative Leadership. We, uh, we met there. My guest this week is Her Royal Highness Princess Rima Bint Banda Al Saud, or Rima, as she introduced herself to me when I first met her. She is a CEO. She's an entrepreneur. She's an advocate for women's empowerment in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Now, if you know anything about that country, that last bit of what she does is a pretty intense thing. Now, we do talk a bit about this, but the kingdom of Saudi Arabia is a country that 100 years ago, which isn't that long in history, was just disparate Bedouin tribes in tents, right? And then they discovered oil and then the oil company came in and then kaboom, suddenly this tribal existence has been catapulted into the space age. And she talks about this. She actually drops this. Uh, she said her grandfather fought on horseback and her father fought in an F-15. So just imagine that, like in one generation, going from horseback to this space age technology of an F-15. You can, if you like, uh, watch her. She did a keynote speech at South by Southwest last week. Um, I've put a link to that in the show notes. She is a very private person um, for various reasons. She doesn't show her face in photos or television. She only ever has like a three-quarter shot of her face. So that's why the portrait that I shot of her um, and is of kind of her out of focus, but mostly some of the wonderful art that she has in her collection at her place in Los Angeles. She's a really, really lovely woman. Um, I'm stoked that I get to go to this school in Amsterdam and meet people there because I pretty much, I'm sure that I would have lived my whole life in Australia. I would have never met a person from the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, let alone a woman from the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. So often I feel that we make up our minds about what a country is or what a place is or how people are from a certain place based on hearsay and assumption. But if you take not even 10 minutes of your time and talk with people from that place, uh, you will be surprised that all of us wonder, worry, and dream about exactly the same things. We really, really are all one. There is no question about it. And it doesn't take much to humanize people from another part of the world that you may find strange and scary and just understand that they want the same things you want. They want safety. They want a warm bed. They want food. They want the best things for their children. And that's pretty much it. We do talk a lot about the empowerment of women in this show. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, empowerment of women is the single most important thing to focus on in this world. Bringing compassionate, pragmatic female thinking into the world's decision-making and leadership means less war, if not no war, a more compassionate and rational approach to sustainable living and a better society all around as we, in many communities, almost double the thinking power of our community decision-making by putting women in positions of power. Um, I'm absolutely certain about that. So come to Los Angeles, California now to, actually, we, Rima was kind enough to invite me into her home, her beautiful home, mind you, with a proper, real-life, bona fide Saudi princess and me having a nice cup of coffee and an afternoon chat. All right. So I'm, I'm recording and uh, good afternoon. Yeah. Uh, do I address you as your Royal Highness? Yep. I've never. <laughs> no, 
just Rima. Rima's fine. Rima? Please. <laughs> when did you get, first get told you were a Royal Highness? Ah, um, I don't think we kind of, any of us picked up on it by any of us, I mean my brothers and sisters, until we were teenagers, I think. You hear it, but you don't rationalize it. And I think we all thought it referred to my parents, not us. Um, so I'd say probably a teenager. Wow. Yeah. My children didn't realize it until my brother told them, in fact. So that was What, kind by of, the way, your mom's a princess? No, they met Prince Charles and were horrified because they didn't know how to behave, behave in front of royalty. So, yeah. <laughs> Hang on, your kids met Prince Charles? Yes. Who was horrified, Charles or? No, my children were because they were so nervous because they didn't know how to greet royalty. And my brother kind of looked at them and was like, have you mentioned anything to these children at any point? And I was like, you know what? No, it doesn't dawn on me to say, oh, guess what, kids? You know, it's, it's not necessary. So <laughs> I, I, I'm very, very grateful that we can talk. I'm, I've wanted to do this for a while. Um, and is this okay to put just on the table? Yes, of course. Okay. Um, this is probably the first time many people have heard someone from the kingdom of Saudi Arabia because it's just this kind of, for Australians at sure. least, it's this faraway place mm -hmm. where the oil comes from. Yeah, <laughs> true. Yeah, for most people. For most, so I think it's important as well for, for you know, a large part for me, it is important that, you know, we, we just humanize, yeah. I guess, what it is to come from there. I mm -hmm. think that's that's also very important. Um, so you were, you were born in Riyadh. Do you I remember was, much about it? Uh, not really. I was born in Riyadh and then we moved to Khabar, which is in the north of Saudi where the air base is, and my father was a fighter pilot. So we were there up until I was six years old. And then at age around- Hang on a second, was he a fighter pilot when he met your mum? Yes, F-15s. So he's, he's, walking in slow motion with the sunglasses. And this is in a flight suit with a Ray-Bans. Completely, that was my dad. Top Gun, completely. And your mum saw him and went, oh. Indeed. Who's that? <laughs> yes. And so he was actually very good friends with my uncles. So that's how they met. Hang on. He was good friends with your br mum's brothers. Correct. Got it. Correct, yes. Were they flying together? They were all at um, Cranwell Air Force Academy. Yeah. Uh-huh. So your father's a fighter pilot. Yes. And he meets your mum. Yes. Boy. <laughs> Indeed. So you can imagine we watched Top Gun a lot growing up. You're right. <laughs> yes. We know the soundtrack. So. <laughs> well, you know, if I, I've known a few fighter pilots, they they definitely there's a thing. They have a thing. They it's like when you meet a, when you meet a quarterback, you're like, oh, of course you're a quarterback. There you go. You, they have a they have a the thing. Best sense of humor ever. The best. Yeah. Full on. And so when you were when you were young, though, you left the country. We did. Yes, we moved to the states because my father was studying. Um, between uh, Georgetown and he was also doing um, SICE at John Hopkins. It's the School for Advanced International Studies, I think is what it stands for. But also he was based in Montgomery, Alabama and all over at different air bases while he was training to be a fighter pilot. So we would kind of move with him. Right. Mm -hmm. And so then did you start going to school? We did. So when in the 80s, he was um, positioned in Washington, D.C., and he was military attache and then um, acting ambassador and then officially ambassador. So we were in Washington, D.C. for 23 years. I was first grade all the way through college, fully educated in the States, alongside all my brothers and sisters. There's eight of us, so we pretty much 
had all formal education there, except for my brothers who continued on to the UK for right. their, their A-levels. So what's it like living in the ambassador's house in DC? Like, did, hey, kids, uh, Ron and Nancy are coming over for tea. <laughs> well, we didn't, honestly, the interesting thing about, about my parents is they didn't raise us to be anything other than kids. So we were barbecuing on the weekends. We were camping out at the farm on weekends. We were um, pretty much just kids. And so we really didn't get very involved in anything of the diplomatic corps activities until we were teenagers or older. Um, so even the other children we met, even though their parents worked at various embassies, none of us were raised um, to be formally a part of that lifestyle, which was wonderful. And it was so normal. Um, the only interesting thing or peculiar thing about it is because DC is so, um, it's cosmopolitan in the diplomatic context, whereby every four years there's a new ambassador, there's different people coming in, Congress, um, the Senate, they're all at different intervals. So we kept meeting people and saying goodbye. Every year it was a new batch coming, every year it was a new batch leaving. So as hard as that was growing up where you didn't have a consistent friend circle, as an adult, we, we all of us literally have friends all over the world. And it's phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. Great childhood. Did you travel back to Saudi as we a kid? We did. We did. But not, not very often because we'd go when there was formal occasions and we went according to school holidays. So we'd be there for about 10 days, maybe two weeks. But that's not really enough to know a country. It's only enough to maybe keep in touch with family. Did you feel... Uh, Different. Yeah. Very different. We felt very, very, very different because English was our first language. Moving back there, we looked like everyone, but we didn't sound like them. We didn't really live like them. And our, our day-to-day experience was so different to theirs that it was almost like keeping up with the Joneses. We were trying to out-Saudi-Saudi. Saudi. So we were trying to pick up any references we got from them to just bring that home with us. And it made for very strange accents. We all speak Arabic with a very... I'd say modified accent because everybody that taught us Arabic in the States was not Saudi. So it would be almost like a mix between a New York accent, South Carolina accent with an LA accent all in one mm. and throw in a bit of the Queens English, you know. Was there a stigma at all that you had so much American influence in your no, life? But we definitely, when we'd go back, would have people ask, do you prefer it here or there? I'm like, it's, it's neither here or there because we were raised that Saudi was home mm -hmm. and we always talked about going home. Um, so it was the only struggle we had when we moved back was um, people expect you to behave differently when you just want to behave like everyone else. So it makes you feel a little bit um, self-conscious. What do you mean I'd differently? Say. So because we grew up in the States, people assumed that our... Uh, mentality was more liberal or our experiences were more or less conservative, but our parents raised us extremely conservatively and um, in every single way from the morals, the ethics, our, our belief system is extremely conservative. And so the way we conducted ourselves, the way we engaged with people, we certainly were not partying. We certainly weren't going out till all hours in the middle of the night, but the experiences that people have in the Middle East of what the U.S. is is very much what you see on E! Entertainment Television or read in People magazine. And we were eight children growing up in a house with parents, going to school and coming home. We weren't living the, mm. the farcical or imaginary American existence, if that makes sense. We were just kids. Right. And where does, um, were you a very pious household? We were very, uh, yes, I would say yes. Yeah. We grew up with an Islamic faith, but extremely moderate Islamic faith. Mm -hmm. yeah. So... All the holidays, 
all the holidays. I remember every every Ramadan, which is our our holy month. Um, every night before breaking fast, we'd sit with my father and read the Quran, and he'd get us all to read it with him. And I suppose that's similar to a Sunday school experience yeah. or saying grace before dinner mm-hmm. as a family all together. So we would do that uh, for about 20, 30 minutes. He would explain to us the different verses and scriptures, give us the lesson, then we'd break fast and then go on with the day. Right. Yeah. And was, you know, I talk with uh, another friend of ours, an Indonesian friend of ours, mm-hmm. uh, and he, he told me a lot about how much benefit um, what it is to check in five times a day. It's unbelievable. For him. So if you want to think about prayer from a less specifically religious context, if you think about meditation or you think about people taking a time out, that's all it is. You're taking the time to recognize five times a day, I need a break, I just need to reconnect spiritually, whatever it takes for you to just check out and check back in, it gives you perspective. Mm. Some people call it prayer, some people call it meditation. Uh, for some people, it might be therapy, um, yoga, whatever it is. And if, even if you think of yoga, when you're repeating certain chants mm-hmm. uh, or the monks in Tibet, for us, it's the verses of the Quran. It's just the words that kind of take your mind off of what you were thinking, allow you to refocus or isolate the thought process mm-hmm. and then reconnect. And it's wonderful. Does it help you connect on a greater level to a, I don't know, does it, does it help you to, I guess, does it help help you to connect with the, the oneness of everything and, and that there's something bigger than, than you? Yes, except the way that we were raised um, was to constantly have that connection. So in our figure wow. of speech, uh, or our manner of speech, we're always reminded of the bigger, if that makes sense. Wow. Yes. I know that sounds strange. No, but not at all. So it's a constant... When I get in my car and go and drive uh, from my apartment to the grocery store here in Los Angeles, um, the first thing I say is, alhamdulillah, thank God. I don't know why. It's just an impulsive reaction. When I wake up in the morning and I go check on my kids, the first thing I say is, alhamdulillah, they're, they're okay, they're well. And it's all just thanking. Um, Bismillah, mashallah. If I'm scared, I say, Bismillah, you know, and that is in the name of God. But it's that constant, it's just, um, mm. it's there. It's just part of my vernacular. It's interesting that other people would like to, 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 to check on your kids in the morning and to be in an active place of gratitude that everything is good. Yeah. That's, that's, it's interesting because that is scientifically proven to be one of the things that raises happiness oh. is to be in, in gratitude. In fact, one of the practices that they, they recommend is that um, before you go to bed at night, uh, write down or think of three things that you are grateful for and keep that in your mind and to like constantly be grateful for things through the day. But right. that, that is a part of your life. Is a very, it is. That's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> it's not just me. It's all of us. Honestly, yeah. my parents, my mother, my brothers and sisters, it's how are the kids? They're great. Alhamdulillah. That's the first reaction. Got it. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. And so you, you went to university in the, in, in the States as well. When did you start to realize that the world might have looked at your country differently to the way you looked at your country? Um, Probably at university level, because that's when I was out of the diplomatic circle bubble. Um, International schools, kids from other cultures, everyone. Completely. And and it was more of an American interaction. And it was people who came from all over the United States. Washington, D.C. is a melting pot. And they'd ask questions like, well, why can't you drive back home? 
well, why do you cover? Well, why can't you do this? And why can't you do that? And then that's when I had to kind of take the step back and see what, how they view what I see as our day-to-day existence back home. And perhaps I never thought to challenge it at that point um, or see it as different because when you're somewhere for just two weeks, you kind of get on with it. You see your aunts, your uncles, and you move on. It's um, only when you actually live day-to-day that you begin to realize, well, this is fabulous or this is slightly uncomfortable. I really like this. I buy into that. I don't buy into this. Um, And I never asked those questions until they were asked of me. And I'd never asked my parents, well, why do we do this and do that until the questions were asked of me. And it was okay at a college level because you're mature enough to realize not everyone has to like you and not everyone has to agree with you and not everyone has to actually accept you. It's actually okay. They can have their own existence and their own experience of what they think you are. And you can either spend all day banging your head in the wall trying to convince people or you can just live your life and prove by your own existence who you are. And that's what I chose to do. I don't have the energy to argue. I just don't. <laughs> Live your life and prove by your own existence who you are. Yeah. It's really, that's a really powerful way to, because that way you're not wasting energy trying to tell people why you're right. No. Or why you feel you are right. Yeah, and I tell you why I feel I'm right. Yeah. Because I might not be right. Yeah. And it might not be the right way, but it's the way I know. Got it. You then, you studied uh, at university, you studied... Museum studied, studies. Museum studies. Mm-hmm. And my focus was Islamic arts and architecture and exhibition and design. And the, the thought process behind it was that my mother was collecting material culture from the Middle East and specifically the Gulf area. And what material culture is, is literally what people use day to day to live. So their, um, their clothing, the jewelry, the uh, tents, the utensils, everything that would show you how something actually looked like and was used. Um, so she was collecting all of these things because when you look at what was happening in the Middle East from the 1930s on through the 1990s with oil, you had a lot of expats coming in and buying things, getting gifts from people that uh, they brought home with them. And my mother wanted to make sure that some of those things could come home and be kept for historical reference. And my dream was to work with her collection and bring it back and create like the Getty Museum experience, Uh um, which I did not do. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't do it. Because when we moved back and the collection came back with us, we offered it to the National Museum. And I was politely... Um, guided through the reality that there potentially might not be a job for a woman in that environment. So my mother decided rather than to put it into the National Museum to give it to um, the association that her mother had started, which is uh, a women's philanthropic and charitable society. And so she combined her collection with their collection and it's now an organization called the Art of Heritage. And it's the basis for preserving our material culture, but also teaching women um, handicrafts and how to kind of repatriate the handicrafts of the past and create new product that not only gives them a job, but also um, keeps our heritage going. The women in your family have always been quite powerful, haven't they? Yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it started with, was it your grandmother, or your, grandmother. Great, or your great-grandmother? No, my grandmother, my your mother's mother. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. How did, how did, uh, what was her, what was her first move? She was, didn't her, did your grandfather bring her back? 
How so did that work? She was um, living in Turkey. Um, her father had moved there. He was in trade. Um, and um, when he passed away, her mother got in touch with King Abdulaziz, who was the founder of the country, and said, you've got family here. Um, can you either help us? You know, we've lost our patriarch. Or, you know, actually, it was just, could you help us? So he asked for them to come home and was going to take care of them. And then my grandfather met my grandmother at the port and fell in love with her and married her. Um, she grew up in Turkey, didn't speak Arabic. Uh, he did not speak Turkish. And for the first few years of their marriage, they actually had a translator between them. And what was interesting about her experience is if you look at Turkey at that point, it was definitely a more established, structured um, country. Um, what is this, 50s? In the 30s. 30s. 30s and 40s. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a very different existence. Um, we were still a Bedouin culture beginning to settle. Um, and so my yeah, they grandfather- Yeah, they didn't, they didn't start. When did the, the American oil company come in? Was it the 30s? In the mid-30s. Mid-30s, yeah. Two, I think. Something like that, 32. Yeah, or a little bit earlier, they might have kind of done some- When they discovered it. Yeah. yeah. And it was the British and the Americans. Yeah. Um, but the Americans got the contract. Yeah. yeah. So it was still, at the time, still Bedouins, still very much- Early days. The yeah. West Coast was really- um, the most, um, what you would call structured as a city because it was a port nation. Um, mm-hmm. And that's the whole Hejaz area. And it was under, at various points in history, the control of the Ottomans um, or the, uh, the various empires that kind of took over there. So it was very structured cities, city centers, markets, and it was a merchant trading area. And that's where my grandfather and my grandmother actually lived for a very long while. He was um, kind of the governor of that area. So my aunts and uncles were born there, they were raised there. Now, tell me about when it came time for her kids to go to school. Right. So there were not schools for girls there. And my grandmother was adamant that the girls would go to school. So because growing up in Turkey, that's girls go to school. Yeah. And she, um, there was a lot of resistance. So what she decided to do along with her husband at the time is they created uh, my grandfather, uh, they launched the first girls school, they launched it as an orphanage. Um, there definitely were riots outside that, why are you doing this? Riots. And so what they did is they put their own daughters in the school and said, that, you know, these are the king's daughters. Um, we seem to be fine with our children studying here. If you want to come in, come in. If you don't, don't. You're not under any obligation to send your daughters. But by putting her own children in there, the community, um, as a status symbol, I suppose, you know, um, keeping up with the Joneses, decided that, yes, if the royal children are there, our children can go too. So what started off as an orphanage turned into the first girls' school. And my grandmother, my aunts, they were all making the uniforms for the girls there. And my mother and my aunt, who's just a few years older than her, were the first two to actually leave the country from their family to go study out to continue their high school education because the school only went to middle school. Um, so they that's, that's such a such a huge move for, mm-hmm. a, for a country only just on the cusp of... I don't want to say modernizing, but just culturally shifting Completely. into the more modern world. Completely. So, and they did. They learned home ec. They learned things that were, at that time in the 50s, appropriate for girls to learn. Um, but that school has evolved. But you'd gone from no women get educated to exactly. women are getting educated. Completely. To you don't like it? Well, the, the king's daughters are going there. Absolutely. How do you like it now? Completely. And... That school graduates. You can actually track the girls that have graduated from that school. They're the movers and shakers 
in the kingdom. And you can trace them all to graduating from that school in those years. All the, the established businesswomen, really the women that we look to as role models, all graduated from there. And they taught, at that point, it was Homek, obviously mm. English, um, Arabic, reading, writing, um, you know, things that in the 50s were what women studied. And as it progressed, now the school graduates women or young ladies with three, four languages under their belts, and they filter into the university, which was one of the first private universities for women um, that my grandmother also started, and it's now named after. Unfortunately, she passed away before, you know, its doors opened, but um, my aunt runs it now, and it's it's a great organization and institution. So. so that's such a, you know, because, I mean, we'll talk about it. When you empower women in society, it's it's such a, such a powerful thing. Mm -hmm. What kind of effects did the educating of those women have on the society? So it it did a lot because um, first it's the fact that they're leaving their home and then coming back and they're safe and they're enlightened and they're exposed. Um, when you expose a woman to knowledge, she wants more. And then it just... I don't know how to explain it in a way that's not um, too simple because simple's fine. Simple's fine, but it's like watering a plant. If you give it water and you give it sunshine, but then you take it away, it withers. So it constantly looks for more sunshine and more water. It wants it and it craves it. And I think that's what education is, regardless of whether you're male or female. So the reaction to the country was wonderful because you now had a balance of education. So you had a balance in the community of people together wanting more and together wanting a better life. And that's what education does. It would have been a, a tumultuous time in the country going from Bedouin, it's like a semi-nomadic yep. existence, yep. suddenly enormous capital, wealth, enormous yes. wealth comes in. And, and suddenly the rest of the world that is running around with telephones and electricity is knocking on your door. It would be like if we suddenly got catapulted into a, a thousand years in the front, like now, it would be yeah. so traumatic for so many people that, yeah. that modern life is suddenly upon them. So my father remembers the first radio. He remembers the first toilet, the first light, the first car. He remembers people shooting at radios because it was the devil's voice coming out because there was no way to rationalize this voice coming from that box. They've been living a, this traditional way for thousands what of years. What does this mean? Yeah, How yeah. is this possible? You know, um, And this is where people misunderstand a lot of what happens in our country. 1930 is not that long ago. Not 1940, even 1950. It's not even 100 years. So if you look at the people that are now adults and in positions of authority, those are people that remember those days. They were born then, and that was their existence. And in their own lifetime, they are going from the tent to a multi-story building with internet. So when they look out and they see what the country is today compared to the country they were born in, it's phenomenal. It is outstanding what it's reached. So they look at my generation or the generation younger and say, how ungrateful of you? How could you not appreciate what you've got? What more could you want? But as life progresses and each generation has access to more knowledge and more information, you obviously you want more. So when you're living in, um, in a country where you have 10 generations still alive, it's grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents with grandchildren, great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren, all there. 
if you want to look at the disconnect of conversation from the two oldest generations to the two youngest, it's like chalk and cheese. It's two different worlds, two different realities. And the question is who's being grateful and who's being ungrateful and who's being accommodating and not accommodating. And what, what, what speed do you actually need to move at to progress and how slow do you need to go to kind of just stop and be grateful? So it's, that's where we are. We're in a salad bowl. So the, the thing is like here in America or Australia, you know, parents would be like, I remember when there was only three channels of television. Correct. <laughs> and it was black and white. Grandmother goes, I remember when it was black and white. Mm-hmm. But that's it. It's not like the world I live in, this city of Riyadh looks nothing Correct. like it did. Uh, and that city over there wasn't even there. <laughs> My grandfather fought on horseback. My grandfather. My father was an F-15 pilot. Try to rationalize that. How do you rationalize that? in one generation. That's that's like just a quantum leap in technology. Ridiculous. Yeah. It's ridiculous. It's a lot, it's a lot for a culture to absorb. It is. So that in and of itself causes identity crises. It just does. You know, who am I? Where do I belong? What do I hold on to? What do I let go of? How soon do I let go? What am I adamant I can't let go of? And that becomes the dialogue within the family of what's your ritual, what's your heritage, you know? When did you first, well, let me ask then, and what, so what role does, uh, what role does the the common faith play in that, in keeping the generations together? So we're a faith-based society and I don't think that's ever, 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 ever gonna change. And that's the baseline unifier across the board. Um, How far people go with their faith or how little Again, personal choice, but it's the unifier, regardless if you go to the north of the country or the south of the country. Um, And that, again, is our other issue is, is our heritage and our culture our culture or is it our religion? Which one did we take from? Are we, because if you want to take it as heritage and culture, we actually have many different cultures within the territory that our nation is on. You've got the West Coast, the North and the Central. Central was nomadic, West Coast are merchant. Whose culture tops whose? And um, I don't think either one does top it. You've got to kind of all coexist. But when the country was unified, it was the, the culture of the center that kind of became the overarching identity of the nation at the expense of perhaps the other heritage, mm-hmm. which it's changing now because as we you know, move on with you know, life and knowledge and education, you begin to value everybody's heritage. Um, but that goes into issues of what do you preserve? Do you preserve every single building or do you get rid of the buildings because you need new towers? Do you preserve the landscape and the art as it was or do you chuck it and maybe put it in storage so you can make a wider road? What, what do you keep and what do you do? How do you plan your city for the future and all the generations coming? Um, but then how do you keep an identity of, of, of your nation? Who are you? That's what we're debating right now. We don't know. There's not many other countries in the world that face such a, such a challenge. No. I mean, we've got beautiful buildings built in the Ottoman times, but they're falling apart. Do you preserve them and keep them? That's what I would do. Um, or because they're in an inconvenient location, do you actually put the highway that would make, I don't know, transportation and, and movement so much easier for millions? I don't know. Do you, can you move it? Can you take it somewhere else? The way it was built, it's going to crumble. Yeah. What do you do? Yeah. So when did you first start getting a taste of, 
of entrepreneurial life? When did you first go, you know what, I might start making a few things myself? Mm. Um, it started um, when my grandmother fell ill and um, we were constantly going back to Saudi, back and forth, back and forth. And I would get there and things that I was just used to having as conveniences in the States, I couldn't find there. Uh, from the simplest thing of where can I go get my nails done? Who do I call? Where do I go get my hair done? Um, where's the laundry? Where's Where are the things that my day-to-day, -day, you know, where's 7-Eleven? Um, I don't know where that is. <laughs> what is the equivalent of a 7-Eleven in Saudi? And my cousins uh, were starting a um, concept for a ladies' day spa. And so they asked me if I wanted to participate with them. And I said, listen, I'm living in the States. I don't know how I could possibly help you. And they said, well, since you're there, maybe you could look at the products, the different um, fitness um, activities that are going on there that we could apply back and bring back into the country. Maybe you can interview the, the therapists that we want to, to bring in. And so I said, sure. And from a distance, that's where I got bit by the retail bug. And I realized I love finding things, bringing them back. I like the whole cycle of discovery and watching numbers and um, product move and learning what do people like, do they, what don't they like, why do they like it, why don't they like it, what's the psychology behind, what made them buy this right now versus that, what fitness exercises are so fun and original because I hate exercising, um, <laughs> what could we possibly do that could be entertaining and actually be a reason why a woman would leave her house and come choose to do this at our physical location. So we became one of the first ladies day spas that had an outdoor presence. And the reason that that's significant is most of these spas or fitness centers were either in a hospital or in a hotel, or the ladies would work out at home. The location that we chose for our, our um, business was an old compound. And what that means is it's a small uh, plot of land that has maybe five or six villas that were studios with two bedrooms, small gardens, and a communal swimming pool. So we took over a location. With a wall like around it. With a wall around it. Got so it. we took over that location. And we literally retrofitted the inside, one to be a beauty salon, one to be um, a fitness studio, private studios. We were doing Tai Chi and yoga, spinning classes, um, water aerobics. And the one thing that we did to all of the villas was put huge windows so the ladies who were working out inside the building actually could see outside. And it was beautifully landscaped. And the reaction we got to that was, it was such a relief to finally go somewhere, take off your abaya, feel comfortable, and be able to breathe the fresh air and feel that you're indoor, outdoor. And where we live is hot. It's hot, hot, hot. It's like being in Arizona or Nevada or perhaps even Australia. It's extremely hot in like the summer. 55 degrees. Ridiculous. Yeah. Freezing cold in the winter. And so everybody would go from home to mall, mall to restaurant, restaurant to home. It's a stifling indoor existence. So them coming to our location and actually being able to sit outside and breathe and move was a great thing for these ladies. So um, that's when I first got bit by it. But I wasn't extremely active until I moved home to Saudi. And I took on a little bit of the marketing and event planning for the, um, for the spa. And then I was offered the job at Harvey Nichols. And Which is the first Harvey Nichols outside of the UK. Yes. It's a big department store. Yes, it is. And yep. prior to my arrival in the kingdom, it was already running for about um, nine years. And when I came home, it's my family that has the license for Harvey Nichols, and it's a family-run business. But the business is affiliated with um, the King Faisal Foundation and the mandate for the King Faisal Foundation. So I was um, 
given the job because I attended the shareholders meeting. Uh, my mother had invested on our behalf. I did not know what Harvey Nichols was. We grew up in the States. Uh, we really didn't go to London much. And um, the only question I asked was, what am I looking at? You're asking my opinion. What is this meant to be? And they said that Harvey Nichols is a UK brand, similar to a Barney's in, in the States. I said, great, you've got Macy's. You don't have Harvey Nichols or Barney's. And my suggestion to them was give Harvey Nichols back their name and run the department store under whatever name because you, clearly you're making money. Um, and my cousin's answer was, if you think you're so bright, why don't you come and run it? And um, that was not my intention. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Because that was not my degree, not my, my interest, that, not my skill set either. So he gave me the... Um, position on the board for one year till I could get my act together, get my head around it. So after a year on the board, I jumped straight in um, as president of the company and we began the turnaround. And we started with the back office. So our finance, our supply chain logistics. And once we managed to get all the nuts and bolts in order, we then focused on the inside of the store, buying um, what the place looks like and their marketing. And so we managed to go from a business that was yes, initiated and, and launched out of Saudi, but with no Saudi employees, to now 70% um, of our staff are native and local, and 50% of them are female. And if you look at the 50%, if you want to look just at the store, then it's 70%, but we also have to manage the warehouse. And, you know, so if you look at the big picture, it's 50% are female. And and that leads us to the, the work you're doing at, at, at the moment, which is is super, super exciting. Can you give the backstory uh, a little of, um, yeah, you've started, you've started an academy? Yes. Yeah. So I'll, I'll explain how we got there because the, the idea came out of the store. So about two and a half years ago, a mandate came from the Ministry of Labor saying within eight months, you need to feminize the store in very specific areas. Where we as a department store had a, a leg up on the mandate was when we looked at the laws, I couldn't understand why we weren't employing women in the store. And I was told it's because women were not allowed to sell in a mixed environment. Um, and I didn't want to sh turn the store into a women's only um, environment. If I wanted only sales ladies, then I couldn't let men in as my clients. And I don't think that that's a healthy retail environment. 
Um, because frankly, anyone in retail knows um, when the lady's budget runs out, you want her husband in there paying for the rest of the products that she wants to buy. <laughs> so I wanted to make sure that men and women and a family could come into the store and still have a full retail experience and leave. So um, when we looked at the law, it said women could not sell, but it didn't say anything about makeup artists. It didn't say anything about working in the dressing rooms or um, in the personal shopping areas. So our first line of attack was contacting all of the cosmetics brands and asking them that if we created private cosmetic rooms, would they be willing to bring in a female makeup artist that could give a private experience in the makeup room? But my idea behind that was not to have an afterthought of just a little white cubby hole with a sliding door or a curtain. I wanted it branded. So all of the brands said yes. So Bobby Brown's room looks like the Bobby Brown counter. The Estee Lauder room looks like the Estee Lauder counter because from a brand experience, I wanted it to carry through it's not an afterthought. This is really your line of business. It needs to continue in the presentation. So we are and have been since then the number one cosmetic sales in the kingdom, bar none, even on low season, high season, we are number one across the board. And it's because we basically looked at our community and realized none of these women actually want to have a man touch their face. Um, they don't want to play with the makeup in front of everybody. And as soon as you gave them privacy, they, for the ladies who cover their face, could uncover. For the ladies that are just a little bit more private, they can play. And so it was just looking at the hole in the market and providing a solution. Then we um, created a personal shopping area. The women that we originally employed, um, I think, had the strongest arms in the world because their whole job was to stand in front of the dressing room, take the clothes from the salesman, give it to the lady in the dressing room, take it back out from the dressing room and hand it back to the salesman. Um, and that wasn't enough. We were only able to employ about five or six women doing that. So we're like, okay, how can we maximize this? So we flipped the whole dressing room area, created a personal shopping area and created dressing room attendants as a job, personal shoppers as a job, um, stylists as a job. And then we were able to add 15 jobs in that area rather than six. So we Thank just kept trying to figure out ways we can bring the ladies in. So when the law came out, it was difficult because eight months wasn't long enough of a time to train everyone. No, thank you. Mm -hmm. Thanks for the coffee. Mm -hmm. um, eight months wasn't very long at all. It's not long at all. It was a slightly irrational goal because it shows you how sometimes with the best of intentions, you can create a disaster. The intention was to force businesses to hire women. Um, and with a finite timeline of if you don't do it within eight months, we're shutting you down. So now women are in droves coming into the workplace. But the skills that they were given to learn to do their job were not actually the skills that I found that they actually needed. It takes more to sell than just to run a cash register. Um, you need to learn your stock counts. You need to learn the inner workings of a business, regardless of whether we're a department store, or if you're working in a supermarket, or if you're somebody's secretary. There's a machine that you've now joined. And over the two, three years, um, we created training programs. But when we were thinking of the training programs, very arrogantly, we were thinking these ladies must know this. Like there was common basic 101 things I thought everybody knew. Um, and that shows you sometimes your own um, preconceived notions of common sense or common knowledge. Um, you sometimes need to come down and 
look at things from everybody else's perspective, not your own journey. So we realized that these ladies did not know their legal rights. They did not know what they owe a company. They did not know what a company owes them. They didn't know how to open their bank accounts. They didn't know that um, if they're being harassed in the workplace that they need to go to HR and report it. They didn't know how to use HR. They don't know how to resolve conflict. Um, they, uh, some of the ladies, this was shocking to me, didn't realize that it's not okay to take 20 um, reals out of the cash register to go have lunch because it's not your money. Um, that's the company's money. Um, so we, we have- But again, these are all challenges that are the product of a, of a society that has culturally had to leap forward. Thousand percent. Hundreds of years. Thousand percent. In and it's not ten years. her fault. So yeah. you'd have some a lady come in and after two weeks of training say, I know everything. I don't need more training. I'm like, no, my dear, it's it's cyclical. We train you every six months. You come in and we, you know, we regroup. It is not a judgment on you that you don't know what you're doing. We're now giving you the next skill set, helping you to grow in your career. Career path planning, aspiration versus expe expectations. And um, we had a lot of issues of just basic work flow issues, uh, time management, um, responsibility, gratitude and empathy. Empathy is a huge one that we were missing because I'll give you a small example. We had one of the girls in our accounting office who decided to post payments on Thursday, not Tuesday. The difference in that means on Friday, when everyone's payments automatically get withdrawn from their accounts, if their salary hasn't hit, you've now messed up their credit lines. You've, you've actually ruined somebody's um, banking history and you've actually caused them a lot of stress for three days until the next working day. And it was her job to do it Tuesday, but she couldn't be bothered. Um, and it wasn't then, could she not be bothered or did she just not know that that simple action of delaying 48 hours actually now ruined a lot for 248 staff members in the company. And what is her role in relation to, to them? Mm. Um, how do you fit into this? So we are, Originally, when I had the idea of how can I um, how can I help these girls, so we looked at it from a 101, what are the basic skills that these girls need to be capable of working before I can actually then teach them to sell something, before I can teach them to work within our, our offices. And we employ around 75 women, if you want to take the total between part-time and full-time. And when I calculated how many women we could affect and positively impact our community, 75 is too small a number to create a butterfly effect of change. So I decided to take my idea out of the business and create a standalone business that is a service excellence and um, readiness for work academy. And once you have your core of readiness for work skills, 21st century basic 101 skills. You can then go into the technical um, avenues of retail, NGO, government, corporate, health services. And it's the core front line that every single customer, regardless of what industry or business you're in, comes into contact with. So if you're a business owner, your reputation really, or the experience that your customer has with you depends on that frontliner, and that's who we want to train. And then I was also looking at, um, uh, young entrepreneurs. We have huge, huge initiatives to support entrepreneurs. But what's happening is they've got their business plan, they're financing, they're funding the dream and nobody to employ that can actually buy into and work with them on their dream. So it's all well and good to support these young entrepreneurs. But if you're, it, it's almost like telling them, I want you to draw, but don't use your hands. Go be creative. Not possible. You need, you need a team. You need people to work with you. So we're expanding the concept to not only have the academy, but then to also be a 
co-working space and a support to the creative community and young entrepreneurs by allowing our students to be the staff for these entrepreneurs as internships. So they get work experience. The young entrepreneurs can really, in a safe capacity, test their business ideas before going out and launching across the world. And it's almost like a little microcosm of an experiment and it's fun. I like it. For the first time in a lot of these women's lives, they'd be getting income. Yes. How's that affecting, how's that affecting things? It's amazing. It's amazing in two ways. Um, first of all, when a woman has access to finances, that's her first taste of independence because she can now choose to spend her money and a woman who spends her money spends it very differently if she's earned it than if it's her father's money or her husband's money. It's just a common fact. If you've worked for it, you want to keep it. And so you use it and spend it differently. And I need women to feel the right to own things for themselves. Um, and I need them to feel secure enough to plan their future because they can earn for themselves. It's, it's extremely important for me. Um, I am a divorced mother of two. I work. Um, and I, I understand and I see from all of the ladies that work in our store, and I can tell the ones that come from a more comfortable background and the ones that are working so hard for every single paycheck. And it's not enough for me that they get their paycheck. I want to also teach them how to manage their finances, how to manage their expectations of how they want to live their life. How do you manage your career so that you can actually get to your dream of where you want to be? So we don't want to just train them to work. I want to train them to be capable and competent part citizens of this community. And to do that, um, you've got to take the time out and really invest in giving them these skill sets. If you can train these women to work and let them taste what it feels like to get the financial return from it, their families taste it too. And it becomes an equalizing effect in the household and her value as the second um, income coming in. It just changes the perspective that the men in her family have when they look at her and the value that she has in that family. And I'm not saying you need to value someone just for financial reasons, but when you look at the way that women exist in our nation or perhaps my part of the world, um, we, not every family is enlightened enough to put equal value on male and female. And if you look at that from a male point of view, that's a burden. Can you imagine being the only boy in a family, knowing that you're going to grow up having to take care of all of the women of your family? That is a heavy, heavy, heavy burden. What if you want to be an artist? What if you want to be a dreamer or a creator? And that's not a high paying job. So you're going to now, as this boy, put aside all of your dreams because you have to take care of these women. And a lot of people look at the journey of women exclusively as a woman's story. It's a man's story too. So when you have a family of one son, six girls, if all the girls are working and everybody's taking part and everybody's now contributing to the success of this family, that burden is equalized. And I think that that's a more fair existence for a family than isolating the women and throwing the boys out. Because frankly, the boys have dreams too. As much as the girls want to dream, the boys have dreams. And I don't think it's fair to burden anyone when there's a possibility and there is and could you imagine how sad it would be to live without being able to dream <laughs> how horrible would that be it's it's a way of life for a lot of people it is so what if you could be in a position where you could change that or at least open the door and give access to opportunity that's all it is whether people want to choose to take that journey or not is their own choice but 
it is so liberating to at least know you have a choice. That's all we'd like to do is allow people access to opportunity. So they choose to take it fabulous. If not, at least they know it's there. Only a few years ago, the the role of the women in the household in in your country was very much the what the I guess I don't want to use the word traditional, but a traditional or stereotypical a stereotypical uh, carer mm-hmm. keeping the house, yes. this sort of thing. But looking after the kids, mm-hmm. what about if the woman wants to work and there's still kids at home? So. I'm very proud of what we've done at the store. We're the first and only department store to have a daycare. Um, When we were researching the obstacles for women coming into the workplace and specifically retail, the four main obstacles were number one, transportation. Um, I can't change the reality of the fact that women don't drive in my country, but what we could do is give them a monthly stipend towards getting themselves to work, whether that means they hire a driver or they take a taxi. Um, A lot of the girls carpool together. So we resolved transportation by giving them a stipend. Number two was um, the children. Who is going to take care of the children? And if you're considering an entry-level salary, the salary she's making, she's paying for somebody to either take care of the children or put the kids in daycare. And so there was a big argument and they're, you know, in the household between the mother-in-law, the husbands, and it's a lot of pressure on these women. So we resolved it by creating an in-house daycare where they can now, the men and the women, our staff can bring their children and they're there. So there's no argument of who's taking care of the children. They're three steps away from the mother or the father. The other obstacle was public perception of women in retail, that um, they are serving others, therefore less than others. And what we were trying to do, and we created a whole campaign called You're Our Pride. Service and being in the service industry is nothing to be ashamed of. It is highly profitable business if you're successful at it. It is something to be proud of and it's a skill set. So service is not shameful. So we really worked hard on trying to help change that. Um, The fourth obstacle was training. They felt unprepared. And when that shocked me a little bit because I kept thinking, we're training these women. What, What are they unprepared in? And then we realized we're training them in what we thought we needed as a business, not what they needed as individuals. So taking that into account, we realized it's not enough to teach them to use a cash register. You've got um, an existence um, that is new to them. They have no mentors. They have no role models. They're typically the first woman in the household to leave to go to work. They don't know how to engage in this new environment. So one of the things that we've done at the academy is we've broken down the um, the way we're training these women, first focusing on the self, then focusing on the other, and then focusing on us collectively. How do we do this? And we needed to give them almost a baseline of terminology and vocabulary so that they can use that then as a benchmark to rate how they then interact at work, how they then interact within the community. And at the end of the day, if half of our students never work, if they come to our, our courses and go home, they still now have knowledge that's going to be transferred to the next generation. So again, it's just access to opportunity to be capable and competent citizens in our community. That's, that's our end goal. What kind of people have access to the, uh, to the academy? academy? So we're working with the Human Resources Development Fund. It's a government organization and the Ministry of Labor. They are extremely, extremely active and supportive. And that's where we're going to be getting the majority of the individuals coming in. They have nationwide scouting campaigns and initiatives to encourage people to come and register for work. Um, So almost here, like you have the unemployment Mm -hmm. uh, 
registration? Yeah. Very similar. So okay. they will be um, sending us individuals. And what they've offered us, which is really exciting, is that um, they'll give us access to their databases and refer people to us, um, which is exciting. What happens to a society when you empower women? It flourishes. It absolutely flourishes because it you empowerment is a big word in a small world at the same time it depends who's saying it and what they mean by it um am i empowering you if i teach you to cook and now you can be a phenomenal chef and you can make money that way or am i empowering you if you are um, a very shy individual and now i've taught you how to speak and engage and now you can go out and speak am i empowering you if you are in an abusive relationship and i teach you your value and you leave your husband? Or am I empowering you if you thought you had no value and now you have a value and you've gone out and done something? Where, where are we talking about empowerment? Are we empowering you if you're um, unfit and lethargic and we've now educated you and you're fit and you're a role model and you're going out there and you feel good about yourself? Am I empowering you by educating you? Um, there's empowerment can go in so many ways by allowing you to work in government, which is what's happening now in Saudi. Am I empowering you by letting you drive? Um, and I don't mean me myself. Um, mobility, is that empowerment? Is it part of it? I think it is. Um, but what happens when you give people choice is you then also put the burden of the choice or the result of that choice on them rather than keeping it for yourself. And I think it's important to empower everyone, not just women. I think um, I think a lot of people focus on women and forget men. And if you want a balanced society, you have to empower men and women. And you can't empower women at the expense of men. And you can't move men out to make room for women. Um, you've got to arm them with this equal skill sets to allow them to then compete equally. It Personal choice and belief. Where we've talked a lot about the society that you're doing this in. I can't imagine that this has all been smooth sailing. No, no, it's not. Um, when they f passed the first laws to have um, women working in lingerie shops for forever, from, from the day I, I remember my first memories, men in Saudi sold underwear to women. Um, and when the law came that only women could sell in lingerie shops, half the shops shut down because they couldn't be bothered. Why bring these women in? Uh, we've got these men, they've been selling and you're ruining our business and no. And then it was mandatory. It was like, this is not debatable, my friends. This is what your new reality is. And sales, of course, are going to shoot straight up because what woman in her right mind wants to go buy her underwear from a man? It's irrational, absolutely irrational. But it was a government, it was a royal decree to that extent, it was, it sounds ridiculous, but people rejected it. And people, it was the male merchants, absolutely rejected it. But then if you look at it from their point of view, this is a guy that's been working for them for 10 years, knows his business, he's getting a steady income, why change? Why bother? Because it means I have to now invest time training somebody else, teaching them how to do the business. And there is a cost to transitioning. There is a cost in any, any transition. Um, but you have to look at the upside as the investment in your community. And it just depends how do you view the value of your investment in the community. So I can tell you from our point of view as a store, we lost millions, not even one or two. In that year, when we had the law two and a half years ago and we had to transition, we lost nine million reals. 
And I had to go and justify that to the board. And at the end of the day, a board doesn't care. They want you to make money. They don't care if you've hired men or whether you've hired women. You want to be the most phenomenal CSR, altruistic individual. Fabulous. Make us money. Um, which I can see why a lot of the merchants and the larger businesses had a serious um, dilemma. Why are you forcing me to bring these women in? But if you want to flip the conversation and say, this is now an investment, you would invest in redoing your floors as a store. Um, it's a capital investment. Tag it under that capital investment, except this is human capital. Mm. Just it, it's the reality and it's the investment for the future. And you have to do it. If you want a consumer base that grows, you've got to employ the women because as they move up in their careers, greater income, that's the next generation of consumers for you. It's just a circle. And I feel that sometimes if you can take the emotion out of a conversation and just put the bare facts on the table, it makes more sense. Um, but you've just got to sometimes reframe the conversation. <laughs> Speaking of reframing, mm -hmm. uh, from what I know about your country, mm -hmm. there's a reluctance uh, towards, shall we put it, westernization. Is what you're doing at all seen as this in any way and have you had to try and no, talk to people really. about that well i suppose yes and no so we are a department store we're harvey nichols it's a uk-based brand mm. um there is absolutely nothing middle eastern about it but what we've done is cater to a middle eastern client with the product that we sell so the the resistance to westernization is it's a double-edged sword it's that we don't want to look American or English because we are Arab. That's where we come from and that's who we are. Yet we speak English and there's a McDonald's on every corner and a Burger King. Dunkin' Donuts is everywhere, so is Krispy Kreme. Um, is that westernization? Or is watching Kim Kardashian and aspiring to be her westernization? Um, God help us all. God help us all, <laughs> completely. We can't all marry Kanye West. We can't. So the resistance is not in the sense of the advances that the West has accomplished or brought to the world. It's in, I would say, the day-to-day -day lifestyle um, and the ethics and morals of what does it mean to have your traditional Arab heritage and how do you keep, keep what's good about it and be proud of it um, the same way that people from South America are super, super proud of their ethnicity and their heritage. We want to make sure we keep our identity that way. But are we riding airplanes? Of course. Is that westernization? We watch television. Is that westernization? It's a Western product. That's where it came from. Or Asia, if you actually want to know. I mean, it's made in China or, or Taiwan. Yes. It's globalization. So it's not necessarily anti-Western. It's the reaction to how do we keep our identity, hmm. knowing that things are moving so fast and that our kids can't relate to our grandparents. It must. I know we, we keep, coming, keep coming back to this, but... It's only through this conversation that I've really come to realize how, how just traumatic it must be for so many people in your country. Yeah. Um, it's difficult. Yeah. It's difficult for me to rationalize for my child why we do certain things and why we don't. Why, why is she not allowed to wear shorts? Um, we, we don't do that. And there's no answer to it except we don't do that. Well, who are we? You know, Is your identity really based on what you wear or not? Um, where's your culture? Where's your heritage? It's, I'm not asking her to wear the flowing caftans that my great-grandmother wore. I think they're beautiful. But I also am not comfortable with her wearing short shorts walking around in California. It makes me uncomfortable. She's 16 years old, 
and my comfort level is not there. I don't think you're out of the ordinary. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? At all. That's a totally that's a totally fine thing for a parent to feel. Yes. In any culture. Yes. You know, and she's my daughter. I think she's lovely. Um, and I, I feel uncomfortable with certain things, even though I grew up in Washington, D.C. But when we grew up in D.C., my father never let us wear tank tops and shorts. You know, we weren't um, wearing abayas going out, but it was always long trousers or jeans. Um, mm. Our T-shirts were always to the elbow. We were always conservatively dressed, you know. What, what do you think is the thing you want people to know the most about the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia? What do you, what do you, what, what's something that people may have a lot of ideas about sure. life there? What's the thing you want them to know the most? So I'd say nowhere is perfect. That's a, something that everybody needs to understand. And it's not that I claim perfection or, or that we're revolutionizing or anything. But what I would ask for is the patience to allow our community to grow and develop and experience its own journey of development on our timeline. Because that timeline is never going to match a Western timeline. It's never going to match an Asian timeline. It has to develop at our own pace. And are there things that might move faster and slower? Are there things that will make sense and not make sense? Absolutely. But give us the chance to make our mistakes and give us the chance to grow within that. And, and sometimes I just want to be like, guys, let it go. Let it go. I can't drive today, but if I'm going to sit and worry about, is it going to be tomorrow or after tomorrow? Is it going to be next week or next month? I will drive myself crazy. So I have to look at it and say, I can't drive today, but I need to get to work. How am I going to get to work? This is my reality. I'm the CEO of the company. I have a meeting in 45 minutes. I need to figure this out. And if that's my experience, how can I now get my employees to work? Because I need them to check in 9 p.m. The store, 9 a.m. The store opens. What is it going to take for me to solve that problem? Because there's a lot of things that are going on around me that are out of my control but I'm not going to sit home and kind of bang my head in the wall. This is my challenge, this is my reality, I'm going to go. It's the same issue of, I suppose, if you were in, I don't know, in, in Indonesia and you live in a village and there's a flood and you need to get to your job. Are you going to sit there and wait for the water to dry up or are you gonna be like, great, I'm gonna get a boat or I'm gonna figure this out or I'm going to find my way to get to where I want to go. I have a challenge. My reality, my challenge, I'd like it to change, but I not going to, I'm not going to waste my time waiting for change. I'm going to be proactive and try to find a solution to get the result I need. My abaya, people ask me, how, how do you survive wearing your abaya? How do you survive covering your hair? I love my abaya. Some people might not love it. The abaya is the, is the cloak that we wear, but the abaya we wear in Saudi is very different than the burqa they wear in Afghanistan. It's very different than what they wear in Iran, and it's different than what they wear in Pakistan. Um, it had the identity originally to unify you by wearing one, one material and you kind of blend in the crowd. Today, it's styled, it's cut, it's embroidered, it's different materials because culture takes things and evolves them and it makes them grow beautifully or it takes them in ugly, ugly ways. And with the abaya, it's gone beautiful. I love it. I have embroidered ones. I have different materials, but that's me. Um, my, my daughter doesn't enjoy wearing it. She's 16 years old. I absolutely understand that. But it's my culture. And in our culture, we do wear it. The same way in India, they wear a sari. I'm sure young 16-year-old girls in India might not want to wear the sari, but when they're 30 
and they realize how beautifully embroidered they are and somebody spent time taking the gold foil and stitching it through and then it's the materials and it's the beautiful reds and greens and lush colors, your experience of that article becomes different based on the maturity of your own personal experience. So I would say, let us have our experience, let us have our moment and let it be on our time because it's not going to be on anyone else's time and it's going to be irrational sometimes and it's going to be fabulous and it's going to be horrible sometimes. But as much as you can't raise two children and expect them to think exactly the same and walk exactly the same and talk exactly the same, even though they came out of the same house, you can't expect each nation to be a carbon copy of the other. It's not possible. It's just not possible. And it'd make travel very boring. It would be so boring. A homogenized planet is not what we want. No. Well, I, not me personally, it's not what I want. I can't speak for anybody listening. No. Is there one particular story of one of the women that you've worked with that when you heard it, you go, and that's why I do it? Hmm. So we have Salha. She's one of the ladies I'm super, super proud of. She started work with us um, before I joined the company. She spoke no English. She um, lived in her parents' home, came into work. She was a dressing room attendant. And literally all she did was clothes back and forth, back and forth. Strong arms. Very strong arms. (laughs) She has gone in six years from being a dressing room attendant to the manager of the urban contemporary area. Uh, managing about 120 brands. She speaks perfect English. She makes 300,000 rials hands down a week for the store. She gets her bonus on that. She gets her incentive off of that. That's about $100,000 with her eyes closed just because people buy into Sarha knows what I want. She's grown all the way through our system from when there was no training to when we started training the women. She now trains the other ladies that come in and work in the store. And she is... She's like a mountain of strength. I cannot begin to explain to you. She was absolutely silent. She was one of the women that first alerted me to the fact that her boss was abusing her verbally. And she said nothing. She'd wake up every morning hating life, but coming into the store and coming to work because she needed the paycheck. She's now married. She's actually, I think she's pregnant now, which is lovely. But what I love about Sadha is um, she comes from a um, group in our community that are definitely sit within the lower socioeconomic level, you would not expect her to come out of that. But she did, and she did it willfully, and she's our number one saleswoman today. But it's not just Sadha. We have these two boys that started working with us part-time, and they started as teenagers. And one of them would come during the day, and the other one would come at night, because one of them was studying at night and doing the equivalent of his GED exam, and the other one was going to school during the day. They lived an hour and a half away, and they would sleep um, at their friend's apartment that was halfway between where the store is and where their village was. And both of these boys are now full-time employees, high school graduates, speak perfect English. They're both selling in the children's department, and both of them bring in, I think, if I'm not mistaken, they've gone from being part-time employees to full-time, and one of them is the children's department manager, and the other one is an assistant in the children's accessories area. And they have bought an apartment together, and they both want to go to college, and they're saving up for it because they want to go to one of the private universities rather than the public ones, because, by the way, education is free in Saudi. Um, And I love them. I, I absolutely love these kids. And I love the fact that they... Nobody forced them to do this job. They could have just stayed home. They could have gotten a government job. They could have loitered. They could have 
done nothing, but they struggled, they overcame, and they still have this job, and they haven't left us. We have another boy who actually went and studied English in Australia, um, Tarek. He started in cosmetics, and then he came and asked me if the company would sponsor him for a year to go study in Australia to learn English. And I said, would you come back if we did this? And he said, yes, and he did. Left for a year, came back, speaks perfect English, and he's now actually the head of the upper ground um, five years later. And they come back and they stay. But what it tells you is you've got to invest in your staff and you've got to listen and you've got to appreciate and you've got to accommodate people because their journey is definitely not my journey. And I need to create an environment that allows them to feel welcome and allows them to feel like they can grow. And the reason we created the academy is to just keep doing this in the four walls of a department store is not enough. So if we can take the idea out and create more environments like this, I think we'll be more successful and I'd be more excited to be a part of something like that. So that's what we've done. Yeah. But also I have to say, the idea of the academy would not have taken form the way it is if I hadn't gone to Think, which is the program where I met you. The school that we the met at. The school that we met at. And I'm working with the school, I'm working with my classmates. and. The thing that I've learned the most is I have never been more nervous in my life than walking through the doors of day one at Think because I thought I couldn't do it. I didn't think that my experience could compare to the experience of anybody there. Um, I was insecure about it and I thought that my idea was just an idea that could not be a reality. But what Think taught me is to allow myself to drop my anxieties and just give in give in, jump in, do it. And I realized the resources I had was not just the school, but the people they introduced me to. And my contemporaries and my classmates are so outstanding, yourself included, that you've changed my life. And through that, you're helping me change lives back home. And I love that. I love it. It's, it's, an, it's been a, a marvelous experience for me. It's insane. And I work there now. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> it's just even, it's, even wilder. It's wonderful. Um, and it's, I love that I got, because I think I probably would have lived my whole life never having met or speak, spoken to or had uh, a, a friendship with someone from the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. I don't think it would have ever have happened. Yeah. Nor uh, someone uh, from Indonesia, like our friend Wempi. Completely. And the more, and like in my, I think in our class, we have people from, there's people from Norway, from Palestine, from, um, just everywhere. Tunis, Egypt. Yeah. And, and when you get everyone together and you're breaking bread and we eat three times a day together, mm-hmm. it's we're, all all, the same. we're all one, man. All the same. All the same anxieties, all the same nervousness. And what was interesting is the most accomplished individual was as insecure as I was walking into this, thinking, what am I doing here? Am I good enough to be here? And then you realize, hang on. That person over there with two PhDs is also nervous. Completely. Yeah. I'm like, seriously? This is amazing. And I'm sitting there in awe, in awe of every bio of every single individual in this class. I was the only one that never went to university, the whole whole class. I was terrified my first day. Amazing. Terrified. Amazing. There's something about you, Rima, that is so, were you always this powerful? Were you always this strong? No, no. I don't know what you mean by that. Kev, come on. But you, you speak with a power in your voice and you act clearly. You act with a power and you act with momentum and you act with 
um, fortitude. When did you realize that you were this kind of person? Um, because now let's 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 call it what it is. If you wanted to, you probably wouldn't. You could probably live the rest of your life just hanging out. Correct. But it's if I want to take this from a family context, each there's eight of us, and each one of us is doing something. And the way my parents raised us was, whatever you choose to do, however big or small it is, just be the best at it, and give it your best and go, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. Um, you wanna save the world, have at it, but do it the best of your ability. If you wanna be a gamer, my brother is studying gaming um, in Florida and my father wants him to be the best at that that he can and he'll support him in that way. So I guess when you don't have the burden of somebody telling you no or somebody laughing at your dream or, or minimizing what you wish you could do, but on the contrary saying, if that's what you want to do, this is how I can help you. It's very um, easy to feel that you could do anything. Um, but we're all very pragmatic, all very realistic that I really would like to do this. What's my limitation? What's my boundary? How far can I push it? Because as much as I want to dream and do things, I definitely don't want to do them at the expense of others. And I definitely don't want to do it where it's destructive to one part of the community even though it could be highly productive for somebody else. So tempering pragmatism, I suppose, maybe comes in with our OCD, uh, <laughs> I am OCD. Um, but I think it's just a, a family mentality. You're kind of, yeah, I suppose, but- Because um, you've got it. Okay. <laughs> well, Reem, one of our classmates, um, always makes me correct myself because I was invited to a conference at one point and I said, it was so amazing, Reem. I met so many fantastic people. I can't imagine why I was invited there. And she looked at me and she's like, I never want to hear you say that again. I was like, oh, okay. She's like, you earned it, you deserved it, you went. I said, yes, okay. And that's part of what I think has helped me kind of get over. I'm working hard and there's no shame in working hard and being proud of what you've accomplished as long as it's not at the expense of others. So that's how I choose to live my life. You are a remarkable human being. Thank you. I'm very grateful to know you. And I'm very grateful to know you too. All right. Honestly. This is wonderful. <laughs> um, I'm gonna take your photo. Okay. Um, I've gotta figure out how to do it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That was Her Royal Highness Princess Rima Bint Banda Al Saud. What a woman, right? You can check out her South by Southwest keynote speech, which she did uh, last week. I'll put it on the show notes, the show page at oshiginsberg.com. She is, as you can hear, a fantastic woman doing incredible things. It certainly makes you think about how much we take for granted in Australia, in the US, in the West generally, how much we take for granted in our society when so many people, so many human beings, human beings just like you, your children, your family, human beings who want the same thing that you, your children and your family want, don't have what you have. So I would encourage you to do something this week to empower the women in your life, because let's face it, if you're a man in a modern Western country, it's a fact that you're safer, you're probably more educated, you've definitely got more opportunities and you are paid more than pretty much all of the women around you for no other reason than you're a man. And it's, it's the truth. 
So perhaps just recognizing that is the place to start and just kind of go from there. That's what I would ask you to do. So look after yourselves, be kind to each other, sleep well, and dream of beautiful things. See you next week. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 